Ezekiel chapter 38. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 23. Ezekiel 38, 1 through 23. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, uh, sorry, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Garma, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, and you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he whom I spoke in former days by my servant, sorry, of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth and shall quake at my presence and the nations, Sorry, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs fall. Every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. 
Now, as I said before we started our recording, we're going to be looking at chapters 38 and 39 tonight to deal with this battle of Gog and Magog, which has been, well, these verses have been the topic of much discussion and speculation over the years. But I want you to see tonight that they're going to come to life when we take the time to really dive in and take a look at what it says and use the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. See, Ezekiel's told to set his face toward Gog of the land of Magog. Now, I'm just going to tell you what the Scripture tells us this here, and then I'm going to lay it out for you where we're going to go. This individual, Gog, is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Look again at verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Some of your translations say the prince of Rosh. Meshach and Tubal. And I'm going to explain to you how that's a bad translation, and hopefully you'll see it pretty clearly. So I really think the ESV gets it real well when they say that this person, Gog, is of the land of Magog, and he's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And we'll get back to, well, where does Rosh go? And I'll show you that in just a bit. Now, we don't know specifically who Gog is, but we can get some clues from other sections of Scripture and from this passage. Gog can be a proper name. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 6. In 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 through 6, it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief, by the way, see that word chief? Keep that in mind. That is a very important word. You're going to see that a lot tonight. And a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. There's Hanak, there's Palu, there's Hezron, Carmi, the sons of Joel, Shemaiah, his son, Gog, his son, Shimei, his son, Micah, his son, Reiah, his son, Baal, his son, Bera, his son, whom Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, carried away into exile. He was a chief of the Reubenites. So there's that word chief again. Again, keep that in mind for later on. But here we see in verse 4 that Gog could be a first name. It's a first name of one of Reuben's sons. But at the same time, I don't believe that the Gog mentioned in 1 Corinthians, Chronicles 5 is the same Gog we're going to talk about. But I just want you to see that it could be a first name. All right. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translate the names Agag and Og in two passages. I'm going to show you real quick. Translate both of those names as Gog, which is interesting. Let me show you why. Go to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. And look at verse 7. It says, Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. Now, again, the Septuagint translates Agag as Gog, which is interesting. Also, and we won't take the time to turn there, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 3, you will see the name Og, another enemy of Israel. In the Septuagint, it's translated Gog. Now, I, I share this with you just to show you that in the Scriptures, Gog could be a first name, but Gog also could be referencing an enemy of Israel. Agag was an enemy of Israel. Og was an enemy of Israel. But go with me back to chapter 24 and listen to verses 1 through 19 together. 
I'll set the stage for you here in chapter 24 of Numbers. And let me set the stage for you. Balaam is a prophet, and he's been hired by Balak to curse Israel. He told Balak, he said, look, it doesn't matter how much money you pay me. I'll only say what God tells me to say. What comes out of my mouth will be only from God. So in chapter 24, it says, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse, and he said. Now, what we're about to read here is a prophecy that the Spirit of God just took over Balaam, and he starts prophesying about the nation of Israel, especially in their history in the last days. It says, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seeds shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag or Gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and he shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Now Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I have called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them now these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will, will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up this discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also and his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. As you put that whole section together, you see that God spoke through Balaam this prophecy that in the latter days, there's one who's going to be king over Israel, and this one who's going to be coming out of Egypt, the star of Jacob, the scepter in Israel, will be higher than Gog. By the way, we know who this person is, don't we? It's Jesus. Now stick with me here. I'm going to lay out for you where we're going and then I'm going to take the rest of our time tonight to show you why from Scripture I believe that it is this way. I believe without question that Gog is the Antichrist. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that Gog is the Antichrist. And the battle of Gog and Magog is actually going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. I believe the coming to 
toward Israel, wherever other nations are saying, if you come to gather spoil, why are you coming against Israel? We'll be at the midpoint of the tribulation, but ultimately by the end of the tribulation, and I'm going to show you from Scripture why, I believe the Gog and Magog battle culminates at the battle of Armageddon. And you will see from Scripture how it's almost clear as anything how that's what it is. So tonight, we're going to take some time, and I'm going to show you from Scripture that Gog, I believe, is the Antichrist, and the battle of Gog and Magog is not prior to the tribulation period. It's not after the millennial kingdom, which we're going to look at all these things, but it is the battle of Armageddon. Okay. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Now, this Gog is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. All right. Remember that word chief that we saw in the scriptures? That in the Hebrew is the word Rosh. The word Rosh in the Hebrew means chief or prince or head. Has anybody ever heard of the term Rosh Hashanah? Okay, what is Rosh Hashanah? It's the Jewish New Year, right? It's the head of the year, Rosh, all throughout Scripture. And you can write this down and double check me. In the Old Testament, the word Rosh is translated over 600 times as Chief. We saw it twice in that passage that we're looking at in 1 Chronicles. Chief, chief, that's the word Rosh. Unfortunately, many translations translate that word Rosh, and they say Prince of Rosh, comma, Meshach, and Tubal. And they make Rosh a place. And I want to show you from Scripture, that's a bad translation, because, like I said, 600 times Rosh is used and it's translated to mean chief. Let me give you an example of one you can look at later on. Um, go, you can look later on at 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 17, and you'll see there it talks about the chief priest. That in the Hebrew, that word chief is Rosh. All right? But like I said, a lot of translations say that this Gog is prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And that's where we get our belief that Rosh is Russia. You ever heard people say that Rosh is Russia? By the way, that's a horrible way to interpret Scripture, to say Rosh sounds like Russia, so Rosh must be Russia. You can't go there. You have to let the Scripture show you what, what is. And I want you to see Meshach and Tubal are listed together many times in Scripture, but Rosh is never listed with them. It's not a place. Rosh means chief. So when the ESV says he, Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, it's just simply saying he's the Rosh of Meshach and Tubal. You with me so far? Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ezekiel 27. You're in Ezekiel 37. Go back to chapter 27. And look at verse 13. It's listing in the Lament for Tyre. It's listing some other nations. It says, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Again, Meshach and Tubal are listed. There's no Rosh. Go to chapter 32 of 20, of chapter 32, verse 26 of Ezekiel. In chapter 32, verse 26, it says, Meshach Tubal is there and all her multitude are graves and all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for they spread their terror in the land of the living. Again, Meshach and Tubal are listed Rosh isn't listed, but Gog has been told, we've been told that Gog is the ruler of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Rosh simply means chief. He's the chief prince of 
Meshach, and Tubal. Go back to Genesis chapter 10 and you'll see where this all came from uh, as where we get Magog and Meshach and Tubal. Genesis chapter 10 is where we get our understanding of where this all came from. In Genesis chapter 10, we have the descendants from Noah. In chapter 10, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. There's Shem, there's Ham, and there's Japheth. Now the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth are Gomer. Who's the next one? Magog. It's one of the sons. It's actually Magog was a grandson of Noah. Oh, there was also Madai, Javan, and who? Tubal and Meshach and Tiras. Then it lists the sons of Gomer. I want you to see this again. A descendants of Japheth were Magog, Meshach, and Tubal. Some of your study Bibles, actually, if you have a study Bible that does this, it'll give you maps of where all the descendants of Noah went right after the flood and when they were all born and where they all populated themselves. And you'll find that Magog, or the land of Magog, is right up there north of Israel between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. What we know now is the area of Turkey. And Meshach and Tubal are in that exact same area. Ezekiel is told to prophesy against this individual, Gog, who is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal in the land of Magog. This is a ruler who is going to be in the latter days from the area of Turkey who's going to come against Israel when they're at peace. And I believe without question this Gog is the Antichrist. All right? So... Folks, I'm just going to tell you, it appears that Rosh is not a place, but it's simply the title of the prince or their chief ruler of Meshach and Tubal. For years, I've even leaned toward Rosh, meaning Russia, until I really started to dive into it and dig, and I realized you can't go there. Every 600 times the word Rosh is used, and it's translated chief. So Gog is the chief prince of the chief ruler of Meshach and Tubal. All right. Now, go to Ezekiel 38 and look at verses 17 through 23 again. I believe the scripture shows us that Gog is none other than the final Antichrist prophesied to come against Israel in the latter days and the one whom God will defeat for his own glory. In chapter 38, look at verses 17 through 23. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? Before we go any further, that kind of blows up it being Russia. Because you won't find prophecies in the Old Testament from the prophets for many years prophesying that Russia was going to come against Israel. But you will find lots of prophecies that the Antichrist was going to come against Israel. And we'll look at a few of them in a little bit. Verse 18, but on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, 
And every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I'll enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Did anybody notice the events occurring during this battle that line up perfectly with the end of the tribulation period? We see first there's going to be a great earthquake in Israel when this battle happens. Go with me to Revelation chapter 16. Let me remind you of our Revelation study. In Revelation chapter 16, look at verses 17 and 19. Or 17 through 19. Revelation 16, look at verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It's done. And there were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. All right, we see in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, 38, verse uh, 19, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Revelation 16 shows us that during that bowl, the seventh angel pouring out his bowl, there's going to be an earthquake on the whole earth, and Israel is going to be split into three parts. Sure sounds like this battle is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period at the, at the Battle of Armageddon. Oh, but it gets even more clear. The next thing we see in the section we just read is that all people on the earth will quake at Jesus' presence, and the mountains shall fall. Go back to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6. And look at verses 12 through 17. It says, when Jesus opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? When this battle happens, according to Gog and Magog, or the battle of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39, when this battle happens, everyone on the earth will quake at the presence of the Lord. Again, that's the end of the tribulation period, folks, at the battle of Armageddon. But there's, there's more. We see also in this passage I just read to you in, in verse 22, He's going to enter into judgment with them, and he's going to rain upon him and his hordes and the many people that are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. Go back to Revelation 16 and Revelation chapter 8. Go to Revelation 16 and look at verses 20 and 21. It says, And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. We already heard that. And the great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Go back to Revelation chapter 8. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, and the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
Again, when this battle happens, there's going to be an earthquake in Israel, and there's going to be all the mountains and the whole globe will disappear. There's going to be hailstones. There's going to be fire and sulfur. Everyone's quaking at his presence. Folks, Gog and Magog doesn't happen prior to the tribulation. Gog and Magog happens at the end of the tribulation period. Very clear. But guess what? It's going to get even more clear. In Ezekiel 38, 17, God said that he had spoken about God's coming against Israel through the prophets for years. Like I said, this doesn't fit Russia, but it does fit with God's warnings about the coming Antichrist. Go with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, Jim, Daniel is after Ezekiel. So it couldn't have, that Daniel can't be the prophecy he's talking about. Keep in mind, Daniel was written prior to the book of Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 9, look at verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks or seventy-sevens are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, and by the way in the Hebrew that is Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, or the Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, do you see that word prince again? Rosh. Of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, this Rosh, this chief, this prince, is going to make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's jump over two chapters to chapter 11 of Daniel. And start in verse 36. It says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, that's Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt." Now listen to this. Don't miss this. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Keep that in mind. The Libyans and the Cushites are going to follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. There's more. 
But for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you go back and look. But I want you to see, God said through Ezekiel in chapter 17, chapter 8, 38, verse 17, He said, Are you not Gog? Are you Gog not the one that my prophets prophesied for years about your coming? That's the Antichrist, folks. That's the Antichrist. Now, also, notice how it's God who puts a hook in the jaws of Gog and all his fellow conspirators. Even though they think they're coming on their own and for their own purposes, it's God who controls them and brings them against Israel to show his glory to Israel and to the world. Go back to chapter 38 of Ezekiel and look at verses 7 through 16. God says to Gog and his hordes, be ready and keep ready you and all your hosts that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the lands whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go against the land of unwalled villages. I'll fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and to carry off plunder, to turn your hand against them the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. Oh, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods and to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people are dwell, Israel are dwelling in securely, dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, that's important for later on, and you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you out against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Again, even though they think they're coming on their own and for their own purposes, it's God who controls them and brings them out against Israel to show his glory to Israel and to the rest of the world. That's why in verse 4 he says, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and I'll bring you out, you and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Garma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. So what I want to do real quickly is deal with who's coming with Gog then. According to the prophecy, who's going to come with Gog? Well, the first nation listed in verse 5 is Persia. Y'all know who Persia is because Persia changed their name in our lifetime. Who's Persia? Iran. We know that Persia, Iran is, used to be Persia, but it's now Iran. So we know who Persia is. It's Iran. Iran's going to come. Again, Meshach and Tubal are in the area of Turkey. All right? Persia, Iran is going to come with them. Another group that's coming is Cush. By the way, that's Ethiopia, and that's out of Africa, south of Egypt. All right? Cush is, by the way, have we heard of the Cushites recently? Didn't we just read in the prophecy in Daniel 11? The Cushites are with him. This is lining up with Gog and Magog, folks. Oh, there's Put as well. By the way, Put is Libya. That's North Africa, west of Egypt. Didn't that prophecy in Daniel 11 say the, Libyan, the Libyans 
and the Cushites are with them. Here they're listed as well. Gomer, by the way, is Eastern Europe. Beftagarma is Eastern Turkey. Now, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, they most believe that Sheba and Dedan from the scriptures is Saudi Arabia. And the merchants of Tarshish could be Great Britain and possibly because they're merchants of Tarshish could even possibly refer to us. And I actually did the study and I could have taken an hour to take the time to show you the possibility that the merchants of Tarshish is the United States. I'm not sure it's provable, but it's a possibility. But I'd have to go through so many things to show you this archaeological uh, dig and this historical data and this genealogy and boom, boom, boom. But then I realized as I was doing all this work, why are we wasting our time trying to figure out who Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish are? What is their part in this whole battle? What does Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish do when this goes on? Nothing. They sit back and they say, have you come to see spoil? What you up to? So even if it is us, we're not helping. We're doing nothing. I'm not sure we even exist at this time as a nation. But if we do, it doesn't look good for us no matter what. So I'm not going to waste my time trying to figure out who the merchants of Tarshish are because they're, they're non-players. But we do know that Iran, Kush or Ethiopia, Put, Libya, and Gomer, which is Eastern Europe, and Bethagarma, Eastern Turkey, are all going to come with them from the uttermost parts of the north, which is where Turkey is. They're going to come against Israel. Now, the fact that Israel is living securely and at peace with unwalled villages also lines up with the timing of the midpoint to the end of the tribulation period, since during the first half of the tribulation period, Israel will have made a peace treaty with the Antichrist and many nations. So the fact that they've been for three and a half years living securely and at peace, the fact they have their temple again, because the Antichrist is going to step into the temple, it lines up, the Gog and Magog battle lines up better with it being at the end of the tribulation period after they've had their time of peace and security. Let's go to chapter 39. Look at verse chapter 39, the whole chapter. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field and to be, de to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog on, and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will put, not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it's coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken." Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or to cut down out of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hamongog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. 
And all the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on that day. When I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. Hamona is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble, come and gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and the rams and lambs and he goats and bulls and all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. That's going to be big later on. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in the land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations." Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now this chapter gives us even more info about the timing of this battle, this battle we've for years called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Not only do some prophecy people place the timing of this battle as prior to the tribulation period, some place this battle of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39 after the millennial kingdom because of a passage in Revelation chapter 20. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20 and look at verses 7 through 10. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Because of the fact that Revelation 20, this section here, calls that battle at the end of the millennial kingdom, when all the nations come against Israel, Satan's released from the pit and he tempts people, they come from all the four corners of the globe to surround Israel, and God sends fire down and the battle's over. But because the Revelation says Gog and Magog, a lot of people try to put Ezekiel 38 and 39 after the Millennial Kingdom because of that reference. I'm going to show you from Revelation and from our passages that it can't be 
after the millennial kingdom. All right? Here's why. There's a bunch of reasons. I'm just going to give you a few. In verses 9 and 10 of Ezekiel 39, it says, After this battle, the Jews will collect the fallen weapons for seven years. Now, at the end of the millennial kingdom, what happens next? There's a great white throne judgment of all the lost. But what happens to the earth? We get a new one. At the end of the millennial kingdom, it's over. There's not seven more years to collect things. At the end of the millennial kingdom, the old earth is destroyed. It's burned up and gone, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So that doesn't match up, because after this battle, they're going to be collecting the weapons that were used against them for seven years. That, by the way, is why some prophecy people try to put the battle before the tribulation period because they hear the word number seven and they think, oh, that's the tribulation period. They'll be collecting those stuff during the whole tribulation period during that seven years. But let me ask you, from those of you that went through our revelation study, will, be pe will people be collecting anything during the second half of the tribulation period? No, they're going to be running for their lives. There's going to be hailstorms, hail, hail as we've seen, and fire and sulfur, and the rivers are turning to blood. And it's just going to be a horrific time. People won't be collecting weapons during that time period. This lines up with the end of the tribulation period, and then those seven years into the millennial kingdom. Also, um, in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 39, the bones of Israel's enemies will be collected for seven months, and Gog's burial place will, be, will block travelers for a while. Again, this doesn't seem to fit with the end of the millennial kingdom, because the end of the millennial kingdom, it's all over, new heaven, new earth. But that actually does line up a lot with the end of the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom, because as you will see when we get into our study further in Ezekiel, when we get to chapter 40 and following, where the cleansing of the temple and then the river flows from the temple and it changes the Dead Sea to fresh water and all these beautiful things start to happen, the millennial kingdom will begin and there's going to be a process of cleansing the land. Actually, if you were to go back and look at Daniel chapter 12, people that have really dug into prophecy have wrestled over the years with Dan, the end of Daniel 12 where he's given the number of days. He said, when's this going to be? And he's told it's not going to happen during your lifetime. You're going to rest with your fathers. But at the end of the 1,260 days, we know that's three and a half years, this is going to happen. And then it says, blessed is the one who makes it to the end of the 1,335 days. And all of a sudden people are like, well, wait a minute. Why these extra number of days? A lot of people, and myself included, think it's tied to 1,260s when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period. But then there's a number of days on top of that for the cleansing of the land. And the prophecy here says that they're going to be cleansing the land for seven months, collecting the bones of all these people that have been killed and cleansing the land. I think, again, pointing to the Battle of Gog and Magog and the Battle of Armageddon being the same thing. But there's even more. And this is one of my greatest examples, I think, or not mine, but God's. Go to Ezekiel 39 and look again at verse 17 through 20. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. This is what you say to them. Assemble and come and gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh 
and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats and of bulls, all of them, far, fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you're filled and drink blood till you're drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall f- be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. Go with me to Revelation chapter 19. The bird feast listed here in chapter 39 is almost word for word with the bird feast listed in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom at the end of the tribulation period during the battle of Armageddon. Verse 17 of Revelation 19, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Jump down to verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, that's Jesus, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They both line up. Bird feast at the end of the Gog and Magog battle and the bird feast of when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period looks like the same thing. Also, remember how I told you there was something that was going to be very important? Look at verses 21 through 24 of Ezekiel 39 again. God says, And I'll set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I've executed in my hand that I have laid upon them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. That's important. Because if you remember our study that we had a few weeks ago about that God was going to, at the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the Jews that survived, he's going to erase all their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees. Do you remember that study? And do you remember the prophecies that said that in that day, during the millennial kingdom, that you won't have to have anyone teach and say, know the Lord, because all Israel will know the Lord. Everybody will know him. Remember that? Well, that can't, this battle can't be after the millennial kingdom then because it's at the end of this battle that they from this day forward all know the Lord. That means this battle happens at the end of the tribulation period again. From that day forward, Israel will, all Israel will know the Lord. Oh, by the way, that means it also can't be prior to the tribulation period because if there's a battle of Gog and Magog before the tribulation period, what's Israel going to do at, at the beginning of the tribulation period? They're going to make a covenant with the Antichrist. And they won't look on him whom they pierced until the end of the tribulation period. So the Bible says that at the end of this battle, when God has displayed his glory against this one and many nations that have come against Israel, from that day forward, Israel will know the Lord. It's got to be at the end of the tribulation period. Do you see it? There's one other thing as well that shows that it can't be Revelation chapter 20. Where are the nations coming in Revelation chapter 20 against Israel? From where? In Revelation chapter 20, where are they coming from? From the all four corners of the globe. But in the battle of Gog and Magog, where do they come from? They come from the north. There's a difference. Folks, I want you to see that as you really take the time to dive and look at this battle of Gog and Magog, a lot of stuff we've been told over the years doesn't line up with the scriptures. I don't believe it's Russia. Gog and Magog can't be prior to the tribulation period. But if you look at it, Gog is the Antichrist. And the Gog and Magog battle actually culminates 
in the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period, the earthquake, the fire, the hailstones, Israel believing from that day forward, all line up with the end of the tribulation period and everything that the scripture said with people quaking at his presence at the end of the battle. The Gog and Magog battle is the Battle of Armageddon. Pretty clear. It's going to come from the area of Turkey, the, that area. Keep in mind, people say, well, Jim, how does this whole being the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and the land of Magog, which we know very clearly is the area of Turkey, how does that work with the prophecy in Daniel 9 that the people of the prince who will come are going to destroy the temple? We know clearly that it was the Romans who destroyed the temple. But if you know anything about what happened in history, where that Roman, uh, um, let me back up, where the, the, uh, the area that was under the control of the Romans at that time, the Roman Empire, there were two main branches of the Roman Empire. There was an eastern branch and a western branch. And the group that actually were a part of the destruction of the temple came from the eastern branch, and they all came from that area around Turkey and all that. So it still lines up with the people of the prince who will come are going to destroy the temple and the sanctuary. The Roman Empire included that area. And so it's not a problem that he will come from there. Actually, that's where we see Assyria. It's in that area. And I could show you a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, right after the famous one we all love to quote at Christmas about how you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're least among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me a ruler who's from Israel. If you just keep reading just a couple more verses, it'll say, it says, and when the Assyrian comes into our land, when the Assyrian comes into our land, we'll send against him shepherds. Folks, the Bible's pretty clear. Let me show you another thing. We read earlier tonight that this individual, this Gog, is going to purport a God that his fathers had never known. I don't know how much study many of you all ever done about Muhammad. But actually, Muhammad wasn't even born until 600 years after the church had begun. The church had been in existence for over 600 years when Muhammad was born. Muhammad was raised by his grandparents, and Muhammad actually, uh, his grandparents were traitors and nomads. And there were all these people they kept running into in these traveling groups as they would do their trading. And he got bothered by the fact that there were so many different gods, he decided there needed to be one god. And if you study the teaching of Islam and writings of Muhammad, it's a mixture of a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of all this kind of stuff. And he came up with a new God that had never been known before. And when the prophecy said long before Muhammad was born that this individual is going to purport a God never known by his fathers, that could line up with Islam. And interestingly enough, all the prophecies we've been seeing that God says in the last days, woe to you this nation, woe to you that nation, woe to you this nation, guess what? They're Arab nations. They're all Arab nations. And like I told you, the Roman Empire had the western branch and the eastern branch. And the eastern branch was mostly made up of Arab people. I'm not saying that the one world religion will be Islam. But with what's going on in the world today as they're trying to take over, if the true Christians are gone, Islam's probably going to take over. And this is all the scripture has been showing us all along. I have found over the years that most of the people that have been teaching prophecy that say certain other things actually have been doing a little bit of lazy study. Rosh sounds like Russia, so that's Russia. Or uh, it's going to come from Rome, so it's going to be a Roman person. And now you got to let the whole of scripture speak. And when you do, I think the things come, come, seems to come alive. 
Now, there are people that I respect and, and famous preachers that don't see it the way I do. I understand that. But I found out something interesting that I kind of made me feel good. John MacArthur, if you have John MacArthur's study Bible and you study Ezekiel 38 and 39, you know what you're going to find him say? He's going to say that Gog is the Antichrist and the battle of Gog and Magog is at the end of the tribulation period. It's the battle of Armageddon. So I'm nobody. But if John MacArthur says it, maybe you'll believe it. Actually, I don't want you to believe it because I said it or John MacArthur said it. I want you to believe it because you've wrestled with the scriptures and you've come to understand it for yourself. My job is to show you what I found in the study. And folks, let me just tell you, I know full well that one day I'm going to stand before God and he's going to hold me accountable for everything that I've said that he said. It's not a light load. The Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 1, that we all shouldn't be teachers because those of us who teach are going to be held in stricter accountability. One day I will stand before God and be held accountable at the Bema seat of Jesus for everything that I said he said. I'm looking you in the eye and telling you, as I've wrestled with this, I believe the, the scripture teaches the Gog and Magog battle is the battle of Armageddon. You wrestle with it for yourself. But I want to show you one last thing as we close. At the end of this passage in verses 25 through 29, God gives another reminder of his promise to restore Israel's fortunes in the end. And it says, and then he will never again turn his back on them. The end of this battle, when he restores Israel's fortunes, the Jews that are left that survive this, remember we've seen in the prophecies that when Antichrist comes against Israel, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. A third is going to run off into the wilderness. Actually, one-sixth, half of those are going to run off in the wilderness. Half will stay in Jerusalem. And the Jews that survive the tribulation period, every one of them will know the Lord from that day forward. He'll erase their sin, put his spirit within them, and move them to follow his decrees. And he talks about that here when he pours out his spirit on the house of Israel. But he says, on that day, look at verse 29, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. Folks, I don't know how many of you know this. That's a promise that's ours today. If you're in Jesus Christ, he will never turn his back on you. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. I want to give you something to meditate on as we get ready for celebrating Christmas. In Hebrews chapter 13, look at verses 5 and 6. And when I say meditate, I don't say, hey, I did the reading. I read it, Jim. No, I want you to take some time and to break these verses down into small segments and spend some time thinking about them and praying over them and letting the Spirit of God speak to you about these passages and what they're really saying. In Hebrews 13, look at verses 5 and 6. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Just this past Sunday afternoon, I had the chance to play golf with a young man and a pastor from our church. Actually, not a young man, an older man and a, and a pastor from our church who he and I have been witnessing to. His wife's a believer, but he's not. His name is Jim as well, and he loves golf. And so I will use the gift that I've been given to be able to play golf to go and witness to him. And Sunday afternoon, we were there. And as we've been sharing the gospel with this guy over the years, and I've played with him through my cancer. He knows my story. I had the privilege of turning to him on a certain hole and say to this guy, Jim, can I tell you two great things that God showed me when I got cancer? He said, sure, what's that? I said, the first one is this. When I got cancer, 
I didn't for a second think that God was mad with me or upset with me. Because I know the Bible says clearly that he poured all of his wrath for my sin on Jesus at the cross. So there's no way this cancer was because God was punishing me or upset with me. That was a wonderful thing to never even worry about that. And the second thing was this. My cancer was pretty severe. And we didn't know if I was going to live or die. And I wasn't worried about whether I lived or died. Because I knew that because God had forgiven me through Jesus, I knew that if I died, I'd go be with him. And I wasn't thinking that he was upset with me. And I wasn't worried about dying. You see, he says that we can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? Oh, you want to have this confidence that the Lord's with you, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you? I don't think it's an accident that verse 5 is where it is, that it's tied to keeping yourself free from the love of money. What did Jesus say when it comes to money? He said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Folks, you want to be set free from the love of money? Give it away. Give it away. We've been experiencing this in our family as we've, we've taught ourselves from the scriptures that money is just a tool that God uses to accomplish his purposes. You don't hoard tools. It's just an instrument that God uses for his purposes. And so because we see it as a tool, we have been just giving it, generous, paying for things for people, just as he leads us, just giving it away. And crazy as it is, it's coming in faster than we can pass it out. Now, I'm not telling you to give to get, but let me tell you, there's some biblical truth. God says, if you will trust me, watch what I do. You remember how we were looking for a car a while back? You asked me last week about that. I won't give you the full story, but let me just tell you the short God story is by the time we were done looking for the car and purchasing the car, we bought a 2013 car out the door, tax tag and title for only $14,000. And we made $500 in the process because people would say, hey, I heard you're looking for a car. Here's help. Hey, here you're looking for a car. Here's help. And folks, by the time it was all said and done, we got a 2013 Honda CRV and we made 500 bucks. When you start to learn that when you hoard money or count your money or see how we're doing, God takes his hand to blessing off and says, seems like you got it all figured out. Go ahead. Have fun. And it's no fun. But when you start saying, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm going to be free from the love of money. I'm just going to give it away. As the Lord leads me to share it, pass it out. He is extremely generous. Meditate on these verses as we celebrate Christmas because a lot of people are freaking out over their budgets because of Christmas. Oh, Christmas is Christmas time and things are really tight. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard anybody say that? It's Christmas time and things are really tight. Well, guess what, folks? By the time you're done paying off your credit cards, and I hope no one of you ran up credit cards to do Christmas, but if some of you have done that, April 15th is coming right after that. And I could go on and on and on. God continually will orchestrate things to keep you reminded you don't have any control over your finances. Once you get the tires on the car, the washer's going to break. Or the hot water heater is going to spring a leak. Or a tree is going to fall on your house. Let me just tell you, God will continue to let this stuff happen until you can get to that place where Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You want to have a great Christmas? Stop looking at your money. 
Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. What can man do to me? I love you. Have a Merry Christmas, a great new year. We'll see you the second week of January.